Hello, dear friends, and welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and this is episode number 269. We are nearing the end of the year and the end of season six of the show. Can you believe it? January 1st will start season seven of the show, and it's just wild to me. Uh, What a fun ride this has been. Uh, We'll reflect more on that later, but uh, we just have two more episodes left this year, and then it's a new year, new season, all the different things. Next week, uh, next Monday is Christmas. We won't have an episode on Christmas, but I will release one on Christmas Eve uh, with the one and only Alexander John Shia, because how can you have Christmas without Alexander Shia, right? Uh, He's going to be talking to us about Santa Claus. Uh, have you heard him talk about Santa Claus yet? Because it's really interesting stuff. Um, yeah, he talks about different myths, different origin stories, uh, how Santa became the guy in the red suit, which actually dates back to the days of uh, Coca-Cola, uh, like the original Coca-Cola. And really interesting stuff. But I got to tell you that this episode is not for young ears. Okay, so if you have children in your home, uh, don't have this on a speaker. Have it on on, uh, earphones. Uh, Because, now if any children are around right now, skip this part. Or uh, pause it and listen to it later. I'm giving you the warning. uh, Because Alexander is going to talk to us next week about what do you do when your children stop believing in Santa Claus? What's that conversation look like? Uh, and we talk about that a little bit. And we tie it into uh, Jesus and the Bible. Because there comes a time, too, when some kids ask, like, did that really happen in the Bible? <laughs> you know, And what does that conversation look like? And I talk about how Jordan, my daughter, is asking those questions now. Like, we're talk- I was telling her the story of Jesus walking on the water. And she was like, did Jesus really walk on the water? Did Peter really walk on the water? Like, can I go outside and walk on the water right now? And so similar conversations, what I'm saying between the Santa Claus conversation and those kinds of conversations. So we have an interesting dialogue around that, again, about the origins of Santa Claus uh, and St. Nicholas and the green man in the Celtic tradition. Such interesting stuff. So that's all next week. But this week, we're talking to Pastor Mark Feldmeyer, who wrote a book called Life After God, Finding Faith When You Can't Believe Anymore. Uh, Don't let the title of this book fool you, because this is not a book about ditching God and becoming an atheist. (laughs) It's not a book about finding life when you've left all God things behind. Uh, But the title is actually... It's kind of a play on words because, yes, it's meant to be life after God, which I'll explain in a minute. But it's also meant to be life after God, like life that's chasing after God, a life that's after a deeper truth about who God is and what this divine being is all about. And so the book very much is about kind of rethinking maybe evolving, moving beyond some of the dynamics regarding God that we've been given growing up, especially if you grew up in a you know, fundamentalist kind of a setting or an evangelical setting like I was, where you have this idea that God is this angry warlord <laughs> who, hates, who hates sin. And you know, sin has to be punished and God's really ticked off at sin and Jesus is coming back and he's got his horse and his sword and he's going to be killing people and People are going to hell and like all this different stuff. And we have this mindset, this, this, this picture of this God in our mind. And we have all the different Bible verses to justify it all, right? But then as you grow and you have some experiences in life, sometimes, not every time, because a lot of people hold on to that view their whole life. Other people, though, start to ask questions like myself, maybe some of you, you know, and it's like, well, if Jesus is like this picture of God, I don't see Jesus killing anybody in the Bible. I don't see Jesus doing any of this stuff. Why? How is God this other kind of being 
And Jesus is like this kind of thing. It doesn't really make any sense. And you start to ask questions about hell, right? Like, okay, well, hell is this place of eternal torture, right? Eternal separation from God. God is a just judge, right? That's what we believe. Is it just for somebody to live, say, 60 years on earth if they die when they're 80? They kind of have it somewhat together, maybe by the age of 20. That's 60 years. So 60 years of believing the wrong thing. And they got to spend eternity, like billions and billions of years in hell. Is that is that just? Like if there's any judge on earth who did that, we would say that's the most ridiculous thing ever, right? And so you ask these questions. And all of a sudden you have to realize that this God that you were handed can't stand up against these questions. That's what this book is about. It's about rethinking some of those things. It's about chasing after, going deeper into the heart of who God is and what it looks like to walk through this very visible, difficult, painful, up and down life with this very invisible God. Yeah, it's a good book. You're going to like it. Go get it. Amazon. Uh, we read it together in our uh, Patreon group. We have a Patreon. We had a book study. It didn't pan out exactly as I planned because... We were kind of reading it together, chatting about it here and there in Discord. There's discussion questions in the book that you can use, which is really good. And we were going to have Mark uh, come hop on Zoom, talk to us, but life got crazy for everybody and it just didn't didn't happen. But a lot of people read it. A lot of Patreon people read it and it's a, it's a great book. So go to Amazon, pick it up. Uh, you will not be sorry. I'll put his links in the show notes, links to my books, Rethinking Everything, uh, Emerging from the Rubble. And Patreon, if you want to support the show financially, that's a way that you can do it. Uh, we have about 50, 50 Patreon supporters right now. And all that money, literally all the money goes to help us pay the bills. Uh, we use it for groceries. We use it for gas. You know, this is one of our uh, few streams of income. And so every dollar is very appreciated. Uh, we are so grateful for all of you who do support the show. And even those of you who can't support financially, but you do it by reaching out with a great episode, you know, pat on the back, because sometimes, you know, sometimes I get some, a lot of critique messages, but uh, the, the pats on the back are always really helpful too. And so I appreciate that. And just people who share the show, pass it around. Uh, y'all are, y'all are the best. So anyway, all the links in the show notes. And uh, this is episode number 269. As we near the end of the year, as we near the end of the season, sixth season of the show, Episode 269 with Mark Feldmeyer, Life After God. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're sitting down with Mark Feldmeyer, who wrote a great book called Life After God, Finding Faith When You Can't Believe Anymore. And so, Mark, uh, thanks for this book. Thanks for your work. And thanks for making time for us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Glenn. It's great to be with you. Yeah, definitely. So first thing first, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about uh, what we need to know about Mark, a bit about who you are, uh, what you do, what's your Starbucks order? <laughs> Tell us there all the go. things. <laughs> a grande Americano. There you uh, go. That's always my go-to. Classic. Yeah. Um, I'm a pastor, a United Methodist pastor, currently serving a church in the Denver metro area in Colorado called St. Andrew, a United Methodist congregation. That's uh, a wonderful sort of laboratory uh, for um, creative thinking and theology, uh, deeply committed to uh, serving our, our broader community and, and the broader world. Uh, I'm originally from Southern California, uh, so served a couple of churches in San Diego and in Orange County, California, before coming to Denver uh, in 2014, which was a big move for, for me and my family, given that we were from Southern California and never thought we'd leave, but had this amazing opportunity to to um, to follow the lure, so to speak, and yeah. and and come to Colorado. So uh, maybe the most interesting and exciting thing going on right now in my life is 
my uh, 27 year old son, we have three kids, but my 27 year old son, our middle child is getting married this coming weekend. In oh, great. So we'll be headed out uh, this week to, uh, to celebrate with him and his new wife. That's exciting. So how old are your kids? 27? My oldest is 30 and she's okay. up in uh, Northern California and okay. then 27. He's out in Cleveland. And then our youngest is 20. He's a, a CU Boulder as okay. a sophomore. Very nice. Very nice. So you described your church as a lab. I've never heard anybody describe <laughs> there is in a position of leadership, their <laughs> church as a laboratory. Uh, take me into that word for just a moment. Well, I think um, it, it's a it's a congregation that is committed to um, to exploring and stretching the boundaries and um, hmm. the, the canvases of, of theological conversation and um and I think expects that out of um, not just the preacher and, and leader of the church, but but uh, across the board and in leadership. And so there's a, a, a deep um, intuitiveness and curiosity about um, seeing the world and seeing the gospel and the mm-hmm. biblical world in different in new ways mm-hmm. and uh, to not be afraid of that. And so uh, in some ways, this this book, Life After God, uh, partially came out of um a lengthy sermon series um, that I did a couple of years ago mm-hmm. that uh, that just seemed to spark some interest and some deep conversations that led to to me thinking this is this is an important and bigger conversation that needs to to go beyond the walls of uh, of my congregation. Yeah. Now, has the church that that you're in has it always had that kind of laboratory atmosphere, or is that something that evolved as you have been there? I think the the congregation I inherited uh, in 2014 mm-hmm. uh, was a deeply liter a, a very literate, um, biblically literate conversation uh, congregation. Okay. They um, had done a great deal of work with uh, under their previous leadership with exploring scripture mm-hmm. and um, going very deep and intentional through um, um, a, a Bible study process called Disciple Bible Bible Study and. Okay. Uh, so I inherited that and uh, brought to it, uh, I think, a different theological lens as we interpret scripture sure. um, and, you know, uh, to bring people into new spaces and new conversations. Okay, awesome. So uh, we're going to get into your book in a moment, but I was wondering if you could give us like the brief overview, elevator pitch of the book, uh, Life After God, because I, I shared the the title with some people. And they're like, so it's about it's about leaving God behind completely. And I'm like, no, like it could be that, but I think it's bigger than that. So maybe talk to us a little bit about the title, about the book, and who this book is for. Yeah. So obviously, the title is a bit provocative, <laughs> and it does have a sense or connotation of of leaving the faith, leaving God behind. Mm-hmm. Um, the The nuance here is that I want to invite people to leave behind a God that that no longer works for them, or maybe it has never really worked for them. A God that they've been told about and taught about and expected to believe in that doesn't quite reconcile with their lived experiences uh, in the real world. And um, those uh, lived experiences, I think, are felt both within the context of what we would say would, would be modern day orthodoxy and Christianity, but also a lot of those experiences that people having today especially those that are younger uh are um are sort of outside the boundaries of christian orthodoxy this idea that um we could have these experiences and not even have to give them words not have to give uh, them any um sort of sacred authority within the church that they're that they're authoritative on their own and and transformative um and and revealing for them and um, and yet, so often the church it tends to build these boundaries around what can be believed and what shouldn't be believed. And so, I want to give people permission to rethink, especially some of these major ideas around the nature and the power and the um, the aims of God. So, in the book, as as you know, I, I challenge some common. Um, Orthodox principles around God's power, otherwise known as omnipotence, God's uh, knowledge, uh, as we would call it, omniscience, uh, God's immutability or uh, um, perfection that doesn't ever change, 
which also leads to the sense that God is is not um, movable or um, responsive to real needs in real time. And so I, I wanted to access that conversation through some of those big ideas that um, that we've inherited over the centuries um, and, and in some ways have been um, misappropriated onto the Christian narrative and our theology um, through um, centuries of philosophical um, development, uh, Plato, Aristotle, Descartes. Uh, so on the one hand, I'm inviting people into a journey of, of moving away from that God to a more generous, a more uh, accessible, responsive, uh, and certainly loving God. On the other hand, that after in the title also I, I had hoped to imply the sense of pursuit, right? So it's life in pursuit of yeah. another kind of God. And mm. so um, I, I don't know that I've accessed that um, much uh, for people in, in conversations I've had with people about, about that. It just, people get stuck on the leaving behind. Uh, and I think that's part of the big conversation that's in the world right now about Christian deconstruction, right? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, like the, that's but that was the biggest takeaway for me from the book like there's there's a lot of things in this book to explore and you have a lot of really great ideas and thoughts that that you bring up but for me like this is something that i've been really thinking through a lot just in my own personal journey over the last couple of years and i think a lot of podcast episodes like this and conversations that mm -hmm. i get to have with people like you kind of help me put language on different things but this mm -hmm. your book was really helpful in putting language on this particular issue. And that is that there's like this very big difference between no longer believing in God, no longer believing in Jesus or the Bible or the church or whatever, and just no longer believing in the stuff that I was taught regarding those things. Because I get that like all the time with the podcast. I've had some family members and I told you like before about my seminary and some friends like get all up in my grill, you know, that they can't believe I, you've given mm -hmm. up on God and you've let Jesus go. You no longer believe the Bible. Like I, I thought I knew you, like, well, mm -hmm. who are you? Who are you turning into? And I'm like, like, hold up. Uh, like I never said any of that. Like I still love God very much. I still love Jesus. In fact, I, I still love the Bible. I just don't believe in a lot of those man-made theologies or pieces of dogma or whatever it is that mm -hmm. surround those things so much like in our, in our experience. And, you know, like personally, like I, I no longer care about biblical inerrancy. You know, I don't really care that much about atonement theories or these deep mm -hmm. theological discussions where we go back and forth about, you know, who's right and, and who's wrong. I used to thrive on those things. I love those kind yeah. of conversations. But nowadays I'm just like, eh, like it doesn't really do it for me. Like it just feels irrelevant to me. It doesn't have to be that way for everybody. Some people might find a lot of life in that and that's great. But it's just kind of where, where I'm at, like I'm finding meaning. Uh, in regards to God and Jesus and the Bible and all these things, like in much different places these days. So the book helped me put language on all of that. <laughs> yeah. And you're naming um, one of the reasons I wrote the book is to give people some of that language to enter into those conversations that otherwise can turn immediately to Christian gaslighting. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's, there's no species of human on the planet that's better at gaslighting others than the, the Christian species, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and so, uh, I mean, like, how can you believe that? Or how can you not believe this? Um, and and that immediately shuts down and shames and and triggers folks into a defensive position. Yeah. And, and it, it just blocks conversation and creativity and, and the pursuit of God. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things, I mean, you talk about it in the book about the omnipotence of God, you know, God being all powerful, and God being this amazing being who can do all things, who's control in control of everything. And like, I lived my life that way for the longest time. And then in like 20, I think it was 2015, 2015, my wife and I had a miscarriage and that mm. set everything off for me because I remember... And I've told this story in the podcast before, but like we were in the hospital and we were getting ready to go. And I went out to get the car to pull up to pick up my wife. And I was just screaming at God, like, how could you do this? Like, you 
are supposed to be all powerful. You're supposed to take care of your people. What is the mm-hmm. matter with you? Like I was ready to just give up everything at that point. Like I had been through Bible college, seminary, all the things. I was like, I, this no longer makes any sense to me that God is this all powerful being who would just allow this to happen. But then, you know, I started to go down the other, the rabbit trail of, you know, not just that kind of scenario, but like, what about people who are raped? What about children who are molested? Like if God is all powerful, why is God allowing this stuff to happen? Like either God is not all powerful or God is all powerful and therefore he's a monster. And that just kind of set all these kind of questions off in my head that you explore so well in this book that I think, you know, if we allow our minds to go there, we can kind of see how some of these theologies don't always make a whole lot of sense in the midst of our lived experiences in life. Yeah. I, as I say in the book, for a lot of people, faith is either killed or maimed at the intersection of human suffering yep. and God's power. Yeah. So the, you know, as you know, the, the word for, for this conversation and the paradox is theodicy. Mm-hmm. And I will say for me personally, um, this work that I've been doing for now 30 plus years, um, really the, the entryway for me was the odyssey. This question about if God is all loving, uh, uh, then, and God is all powerful, then why essentially do bad things happen? Um, if God can stop these things. And, um, and for me personally, um, I, I can access that immediately in my own life and my own narrative, uh, in my own traumas throughout my life. Um, and as a pastor for 30 years, um, I see it played out, uh, sometimes weekly, um, with people going through tragedy, uh, going through some of the, uh, experiences you just named, uh, and being, um, at a table in my office with, with a mother whose, uh, son has perished in a rollover accident at the age of 16 and asking literally, how could this happen? Um, and what I would hope I can do as a pastor is is have these kind of conversations about God's power and God's love uh, on a regular, consistent basis from the pulpit and through our classes and through counseling and conversations so that people begin to have these new tools to be thinking about God. Uh, because in some way, we will all go through that intersection of yeah. of. Uh, of tragedy and, and hardship and questioning God's God's power, mm-hmm. so so I, I'm shaped by a, a theological um, system, if you will, called process theology. Mm-hmm. There are other expressions which I think are very accessible, open and relational theology, and generally speaking, both in the in both of those camps, theologians and pastors, practitioners would begin the conversation by saying. If we're going to affirm an all-loving God, we have to begin to redefine how we understand God's power. Yeah. And is God's power defined um, as a kind of coercive, unilateral divine power? Or are there other ways that can still affirm that God is a powerful God, but not one whom we can anticipate intervening in moments supernatural uh, intervention in moments of of trauma and tragedy and uh, whether that's personal or global and so in the first chapter of the book that's sort of how i begin the conversation uh, and to try to name it as maybe for most people one of the most real and pressing urgent questions um that we go through yeah i'm assuming you've you've heard of tom tom ord in his book, yeah, God yeah, can't. Tom, yeah, yeah. Tom's a great friend, and um, we studied um, at at the School of Theology at Claremont, Claremont School of Theology now, and um, and so we come from that same process tradition. Yeah, uh, studied under uh, John Cobb and and uh, David Griffin and Marjorie Suhaki and some some great great minds. Yeah, he was one of the first people to introduce me to that whole idea when I read his book, God Can't, and he came on the show and he really helped me unpack a lot of that experience about the miscarriage and answer a lot of those questions for me because I was, you know, looking at God as like the puppeteer kind of thing. And that's just how I understood God. But when 
he helped me he helped me see God in a different light in the sense that that night in the hospital when we got the news like God's God's power was in the fact that God was there and that God's power was in the fact that God was grieving and is grieving with us and God's power was in the fact that we were not left alone or abandoned in the midst of all of that and once I started to kind of redefine God's power a little bit it just kind of helped me not be so angry <laughs> at God you know after after that experience I think many people who are afraid to enter into the conversation about God's power mm -hmm. um, hear this and say, well, what you're saying is, you know, um, that God doesn't have any power then. Mm -hmm. if, if God can't intervene supernaturally and, and make things happen unilaterally, then there are limits on God's power. Um, I, I think, and I tried to describe in the book and, and Tom Ward does a great job in, in his latest uh, book on ampotence, as he calls it, that um, that the way we've interpreted some of these um, words in scripture, uh, in particular, the word El Shaddai, mm. uh, and, and how that word uh, over the last 300 years or so has been interpreted uh, as uh, meaning almighty, when in fact, uh, many of the ancient the rabbis would say, no, it, it really means the breasted one. Mm -hmm. So it's not the almighty God, but the God with breasts. The one who, in other words, responds to our experiences with deep compassion, like a mother or a father, the tenderness of God. And there's deep power in that. And we know this. We know, we know that uh, in our human relationships, that that tenderness, that persuasion rather than coercion, um, is is in some ways a far more powerful force in the world than mm -hmm. making anybody do anything, right? Yeah. And so, how do we begin to flip the conversation about about God's power from one of coercion to one of persuasion and responsiveness and love? And that's yeah. what I hope yeah. to do. Yeah, it's so good. All right, so on the in this vein of of thinking, you have these two chapters in the book that I thought were super interesting. Uh, one is, I think you just it's just called shh, like shh, yeah, and the other is called psst, and it's yeah. like the the shh, and I'm the, I correct me if I'm not explaining it the best, but it's like the the shh of the church or yeah. the shh yeah. of the internal soldier and the psst, mm -hmm. like the tap on the shoulder of God. So I'm wondering if you could kind of take us. Now that I threw that out there for our listeners and they have no idea what I'm talking about, <laughs> if you could take mm. us into that conversation a little bit and show us a yeah. bit about that dynamic. Yeah. Each of the chapters in the book um, are titled after a sound. Mm -hmm. um, and as just a way to bring people into a more, more open and creative approach to these conversations. So um, that, that sound of shh is what a growing number of people uh who identify as Christians or have felt, especially over the last uh, generation or so, um, that is the the silencing and shaming voice um, of the church, mm -hmm. uh, of the, the the sort of collective Christian conscience, right? Mm -hmm. That says you can't say those things, uh, you can't think those things, you can't ask those things, and what I encounter so often in my ministry and a number of different scenarios right so sometimes i'll encounter um somebody who's maybe 65 or an older in my church who'll say my kids don't come to church they grew up in the church and they have never returned once they left and i can't get them to come back um and and what i try to explain to them is um for many of them, those the questions that they've had that have gone unanswered or ignored or silenced um, for so long uh, have finally edged them out completely of that experience. There are others whom I encounter in the church who will say to me, you are saying things in church that I've always thought but have never felt safe yeah. to say or ask about. Yeah, yeah. Then there are others who come to my church who who come from a uh, an evangelical background who identify now as say post-evangelical and who come with a great deal of uh, spiritual trauma in their life 
and they've been silenced forever and they for some reason or other have, have wandered into my church and uh and have felt again safe to ask those questions that that they were shamed or even uh even sort of excommunicated from their communities because of either what they thought or what they went through whether that was um a divorce or um uh, an expression of of love and relationship that doesn't conform to, uh, you know, evangelical standards. And so, um, what I'm trying to do is open up that uh, conversation from from that silencing to, um, to 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 knowing that it's it's okay to ask these questions. And um, you know, I described that when we start doing this, that our face starts to feel a little bit like a like a Jenga puzzle, right? And we start pulling out these blocks. Yeah. And it, it gets it gets pretty scary, and so sometimes the shh that we hear is our own shh of um, you know, like we're going into ground and territory that 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 feels off limits, and and we're afraid to to see that Jenga tower collapse. So, um, I I sort of juxtapose that with this other sound, the sound, which is how I. I try to identify the work of God in the world and in our lives. Mm-hmm. That we have these experiences. Uh, sometimes they're audible. Sometimes they're visceral. Sometimes they're visual. But we we have these experiences or encounters in the world in which we we sense that God is calling us. In the process construct, um, we might describe God as the lure mm-hmm. uh, or the woo, the divine woo, who instead of getting coming to us from behind and pushing or shoving us in directions we don't want to go is out in front of us, calling us, beckoning to us to say, uh, as I describe in the book, you could be this, you could become this mm-hmm. um, if you so choose. Mm-hmm. And so that is a more persuasive understanding of who God is and how God works in the world. And I think it's, it's the it's the better alternative to the more common understanding of, of a coercive, um, forceful God. Yeah, I think I feel I feel like for me that's that's been the journey that I've been on with this podcast because you know in talking to you before just about my experience growing up and you know I grew up it was a very evangelical world I grew up in and the Bible college I went to and the seminary and things like that and you know, very steeped in like the systematic theology classes. And there were just certain things that you, you did not ask, you know, you did not question. And Mm -hmm. even if it didn't make any sense, you know, the answer was you got to have more faith. The answer was you got to, you just got to believe, you know, and one day when you die and you get to heaven, it all makes sense because God will explain Mm -hmm. it all. But for now, you know, if you're going to walk on the water, you got to have the faith kind of thing. You can't look at the questions you have. You get to keep focused. And that was like always my, mentality was that shh, you know, just quiet the questions and then i remember i i read um rob bell's love wins when i got out of i think it was just when i got out of seminary and i was like oh my goodness like i never really could latch on to the whole hell thing like completely yeah. and i always steered clear of it in my teachings and things like that and churches and stuff because i never felt super comfortable with it so i was one of those things where i got shh, just be quiet with the feelings and just believe it and then when I read this book, I'm like, oh my goodness, there's a whole like another stream of thinking around this topic. And then I started to wonder, well, if that's true with this topic, what about other topics that I have only been told about with one way? And I felt like that, like you just described was like the lore of God, because a lot of people said, well, you can't go to that book because that's not God speaking. I'm like, well, how do you know that's not God speaking? Maybe God's not going to speak to you through that book. That's fine. But I... I can sense that lore. I can sense that pull, that welcoming spirit to come and explore. And that kind of led me down that trail. And then I started to go down the trail of, you know, thinking about like the second coming and like all those kind of things and all these big <laughs> theologies that were so important to me growing up that I'm like, man, I had no idea there were, that was such a narrow way of thinking. I thought that was the big, I thought this was it. You know, I didn't realize there were all these other streams of thinking as well to go and explore. And so I think that that's really good terminology to use the sh versus the ps of god yeah you're naming all the big questions mm-hmm. right um uh, how how does this all going to end what is the nature of 
salvation? Mm -hmm. um, what's the purpose of the cross? Is it atonement? Um, how do we read scripture? Every time we ask one of those questions, the instinctive sound that we hear either coming from within mm -hmm. and or coming from without is be quiet. Yeah. Um, we've got centuries, centuries of thought on this and it's all settled and it's been settled. And, um, and you start messing with those Jenga blocks and you might be messing with your eternal fate. Right. And yeah. so um, if you don't get it and you named it, right. The message is, if you don't get it, it's all mystery. And someday yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll understand what you can't understand today. Yeah. I just think that doesn't work uh, with, um, with, with the generation that my kids belong to, uh, you know, from 30 to 20, um, they, they don't even understand that. And they, they grew up in the church. They, they grew up watching me preach, um, but they don't understand that language and yeah. um, that way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. All right. So in the book, you, um, I don't know. I feel like the book was very, I said this to a friend the other day. I'm like, there, so what was this book like? I'm like, it's like a Rob Bell book because <laughs> you, you really mm -hmm. write in that very same kind of style, mm -hmm. but you also write in a way that you, you come at like these, these topics, you come at these Bible stories and you look at them from these radical angles. Like I, I you'd be talking about a story. I'm like, Oh, I know where he's going with this. But then all of a sudden it's like out of right field to come with this idea. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like I never thought of it like that. And one of the stories that's really stuck with me, um, even after reading the book is the story of Moses and the burning bush. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of take our listeners into your kind of style of thinking about some of these stories and maybe talk a little bit about Moses and the burning bush, because like for me, it was always about Moses comes up to this bush. It's on fire. He experiences this omnipotent, all-powerful, amazing God. He has this experience and it teaches him all this wild stuff about God. But in the book, you talk about how maybe that burning bush was really showing Moses something really important about himself that perhaps maybe even he had lost sight of at some point in his life. And that just blew my mind wide open. So if you could take us into that a little bit to give our listeners a taste, that would be great. Yeah, and you're naming sort of my hermeneutic as mm. I approach every text. Um, I try to approach it from an open uh, relational or, or process perspective to say, I have to read this text uh, absent of these big ideas that um, that I no longer believe, omnipotence, mm. um, supernaturalism, mm. that uh, God... Um, uh, intervenes in these dramatic, miraculous ways. I know that opens up a whole host of other questions, but, um, and so when I read the story of the burning bush, I read it as the broader narrative of Moses, who really is a, is a homicidal fugitive at the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's left Egypt after having killed a taskmaster and he is settling in Midian, um, marries uh, Zipporah and is feeding sheep and leading sheep and shearing sheep. And life is just, it's good enough. Mm. And he's settling. And yet what prompted that response back in Egypt and that led to the killing of that taskmaster is this deep, deep hatred for slavery mm. and this deep, deep passion for, liberation for his people and so out in midian tending sheep that fire has gone out in his life the passion for doing something bigger and more important and more meaningful is has just gone out and so he has this experience in which he sees a bush on fire and um and the question is you know is you know, is this a story about a miracle in which God ignites bushes that that don't get fully consumed? Or is there something deeper in the story? The ancient rabbis often in the Midrashic tradition taught on the story and said, there's an interesting connection between the flames in the Hebrew word and the um, the heart in, in, in Moses. And there's a linguistic connection between these two so maybe what moses sees in the bush is is not actual flames of fire 
but he sees himself. And the bush is a representative uh, or a symbol of, of his own life, which even out of Midian hasn't, it hasn't been consumed. The fire hasn't gone completely out. And in that moment, he comes to see that uh, the passion that he once had has been re rekindled. And um, and so, of course, um, that leads him to uh, this new mission. I think the burning bush is an example of that that we just talked about. And um, it doesn't have to happen supernaturally. And so is the bush really on fire? I think to ask the question and try to answer it is to miss the point. Mm. Um, because what Moses perceived was the call of God, um, which had never been extinguished. He just had ignored it. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's like the talk about like, that's your hermeneutic for reading the scriptures. I feel like for me growing up, it was always about, was the bush really on fire? You know, did mm -hmm. Jesus really walk on the water? You know, like all those kinds of yeah. questions about like the nuances of the text where nowadays I'm like, I don't know. But the bigger question is like, why has this story endured for thousands and thousands of years to the point where it's sitting on my shelf right up there? Like, what is it about this story that has captured human humanity's attention? And I feel like, like what a great encouragement that is to so many people who are listening because like, we all go through things in life. Like, you know, my father passed away in March. And so it sent me into this really dry season, you know, just of like feeling blah, you know, like nothing, nothing that mattered feels like it matters as much anymore. And, you know, it feels like the fire, so to speak, has gone out. But that idea that like Moses sitting in his place, feeling like maybe that fire went out, then having this encounter with the divine reflecting back at him that indeed the the fire is burning and maybe burning brighter than it's ever burned before you know and that kind of leads him into a new season of his life and i think that for our listeners like regardless of what we're going through whether it's a significant loss it's a nine to five job that we hate at the moment or whatever it is that we, has us feeling dry that fire is still flickering inside i think that that's a beautiful point that that story can bring out and i think if we pay attention to our lives um as I say in the book, those those burning bushes really are everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, they 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 tend to 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 really be there in those moments of despair and those those desert experiences, um, in in which um, we're not feeling much yeah. and we're numb and um, and so I, for me that's a formative story and it speaks about how God most often works. All right. So last question for you. Um, I said to you before, a lot of our listeners are at this place where they're rethinking their faith. Some of them are kind of on the verge of maybe letting it all go, you know, letting go of God and the Bible, church, all the different things. But people email me a lot and they tell me, you know, some of their story. I see it in the comment sections. You know, some people have been under that umbrella of toxic theology that you mentioned earlier. Some people have experienced spiritual abuse. You know, some people have been in homes, you know, growing up where the theologies they were hit with have left them feeling wounded. So as a pastor, you know, someone who has people in front of him on a regular basis, kind of and asking these types of questions, feeling these kinds of ways, like if those people are on the mic with us today, what are some words that you will leave, leave them with? I would encourage people to begin uh, that discernment by either actually writing a list or at least making a mental list of those things that they know to be true, those experiences that they know to be real, um, that they know to be um, uh, revelations, epiphanies, brushes with the divine, however you want to um, frame it. But, but those that tend, those, those that shaped who we are and that, became aha moments um even if they exist outside the conventions of christian orthodoxy and just to hold those i mean mm -hmm. behold them honor them love them and um and don't let any voices outside of those experiences uh diminish them or reduce them to uh to less than 
uh, important or meaningful. And then make another list of those things that that they don't believe but haven't really harmed them. Um, they just don't like them. They don't make sense to them. They haven't experienced them. Um, and, it, and it could be any number of things that we already talked about. But to make a list of those things that they could or couldn't be true for me, I don't know. And to hold those in tension so that we don't dismiss them just because we, we haven't experienced them. But to hold them as, I, as I describe in the book, as sort of generous antagonists mm. who can help <laughs> mentor us and stretch us into new understandings, uh, to not let them go too quickly. And then the third list is make a list of all those things that just have to go. Mm. Um, and, you know, I describe it as the work of, you know, like picking these things up like rodents by the tail and <laughs> taking them out the front door <laughs> or the back door. And letting them go, and if they come back, then you know, get the hose, or the shovel, or the shoe, or whatever, <laughs> and make them go away. It's okay, um, because um, those are the the most serious threat to our experience of the divine, yeah. um, and um, and we don't need them anymore. I think that first list is is key because a lot of times when people enter this world of you want to call it deconstruction or whatever it is you want to whatever word you want to throw on it it's very easy to go to list number two and three right and talk about all the things that bother me or all the things that have hurt me and we want to th we want to throw the rats out we want to throw the rodents out but i love yeah. that first list is that you know thinking about the things that are worth holding on to because it wasn't necessarily all bad maybe a lot of it was maybe a lot of it has left us wounded but i look back on my own life and once I got past that emotionally charged feeling of anger, of you know being told that my faith is so narrow when in reality it was actually very diverse in the early centuries and there's a lot of different ways to think about Jesus and things like that. Like once I got past that feeling of being lied to or whatever it is that I was feeling inside, I was able to kind of put those emotions aside. I was able to kind of reassess my faith, you know, and reassess a lot of the things that I learned and like you know, thinking about my church experiences, my seminary experiences, like it wasn't all bad. There's a lot of things in there that are worth holding on to. So what are those things? Like you said, naming them, but then also putting those side by side with the things that maybe have hurt and have bothered us and hold those things in some kind of tension together and move on from there. I think that's a really, really sound advice. We need the tension. Um, yep. And that can be a, a, a real generous friend. Um, even even if those even if those things that we have to get rid of have to exist outside the doors to our heart, um, yeah, you know, um, they'll go away. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I I've been playing with this image of like, I mean, I know the word deconstruction is huge, but mm -hmm. um, I, I I preached recently that there's this there's this one of the most common dreams that humans have. I don't know if you've had it, but I have it frequently, and that's that I'm in my own house and um, and I just by accident happened to find some hallway that leads to a room that I never knew existed in my own house, mm. right? Um, it, it shows up on the top 10 list for dreams for humans. Um, and a lot of people I talk to say, now I've ever had that dream, that's weird. But <laughs> but you go into these other rooms or you go down a, yeah. down a, a, a basement stairway and there's all this room with all this stuff and um, and you can live there. And mm -hmm. so I think deconstruction is one way to talk about what we're doing. Another way is, is just to move into a different room mm. uh, and dare to live there for a while. So, yeah. wow. That's that. That's that. It's like, I'm trying to think of a word for it. It's almost like it's, it's like faith expansion. I'm not, I don't know what the word is. Yeah. I'm trying to think of like a word like expansion, renovation, not renovation. Cause you're, I don't know. Yeah. Discovery, right? Because you're discovering a new room, a new place. Yeah. Because yeah. that word deconstruction carries so much baggage with it. And it's yeah. such a, speaking of emotionally charged, it's such an emotionally charged word these days in a lot of circles. So I think using different words to describe the same idea, I think that's really, that's helpful. Right. All right. Well, we are just about um, out of time, but this has been a lot of fun. Uh, thank you for your book. Thank you for your work and thank you for making time for us. Glenn, it's been a joy. These are important conversations and what a gift it is to have a conversation with you and with your listeners and, and, uh, and maybe kick in some of those doors and see what's, you know, down the hallway. 
Yeah. Thank you. And real quick, uh, where can people go online to connect with you, your work, any kind of social media platforms you want to plug real quick? Yeah. I mean, I got a website, markfeldmer.com. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on, you know, X and, and uh, threads and <laughs> X. Um, <laughs> whatever <laughs> whatever it now. is. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, you know, and, and a lot of my, uh, got some videos uh, through the St. Andrew website, um, go to St. Andrew.com where you can kind of listen in and, and hear how we interpret text and things like that. I'm also more than happy for readers um, with with groups that are reading the book. I'm happy to jump on calls and um, for a time and, and uh, talk about the book with uh, larger groups. So. Awesome. Well, I'll put all the links in the show notes, and I'm sure we'll do this again sometime. Awesome. It's great to be with you, Glenn. Thank Thanks you so much. much.